everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Reading Party Podcast with Megan and Lexi. This episode continues our season looking at modern retellings of the Iliad and the Odyssey, ancient epics known for both brutal violence and instances of sexual assault. This episode is not suitable for under-18s. We hope you have your favourite beverage and snack ready to go, because we've got our teas and are ready to start spilling the tea on our latest ancient story. We are talking so. about Ithaca, a novel of Homer's Odyssey by Patrick Dillon. This may be the novel that makes me like Telemachus. Really? Yeah. I think he's, he's a much more sympathetic character. He is more sympathetic, but... You don't like I him don't know. So. We can get into that as we analyze <laughs> this thing. <laughs> Put it that way. We can, we can do more analyzing of him. But yeah, why don't you recap it for us? Yeah, so we read up until chapter 10, and the majority of what we read is from Telemachus' point of view. And it starts when Homer's been away. Homer's been away. Odysseus has been away for, what, 16 years, maybe? This is one of my big problems with this book, actually. I'll get right into it. The chronology is all over the place in a way that I'm not used to because we, we usually know how it works. But he mm-hmm. said something like really not disturbing that's the wrong word but just like confusing because he was like at one point he said oh yes the war in troy they were actually gone for eight years oh but people round up to 10 you know it's more poetic but eight years so i'm like no i'm like the original the 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 iliad takes place in like year nine i was like what this automatic no so that really took me out so i think in this chronology the so he was gone for eight years of the war and so he's been missing for i think another eight i think telemachus is it another eight is around 16 yeah i think so So we we start when it it's telemachus we don't get anything from odysseus point of view or even odysseus coming up as a character until chapter eight or chapter eight you see him but you don't hear from him but i have a feeling just by the way it's being written i feel like either it's going to shift to in person him in chapter 10 or someone who listens to him Mm -hmm. so the the first what third i guess that we read is telemachus describing kind of takes you from how odysseus left and he he wasn't even born yet and then he remembers his childhood growing up and how in the early years it was it was nice and fun and they had this beautiful home and his mother was well respected and like really in control of the situation and they went on picnics and it was just idyllic. It sounds wonderful. And then he describes how these men start showing up and they just happen to be sailing past Ithaca. Just thought they'd check in, see how Penelope's doing. And they kind of make small talk with the child who is Telemachus. And then they all end with, is your mother around? Which I, I found quite comical, uh, but it, it describes how it, the situation goes from these men being there as respected guests with a mutual respect, right? Like respecting their hostess and being 
decent human beings to quite literally killing each other in the courtyard, which is horrific. And after the death of one of the suitors and they're fighting over one of the maidservants, Telemachus is told that one of the suitors is in his mother's chambers. And he races upstairs and is just completely unable to do anything physically. He says, I tried attacking this guy before and he just threw me aside. So I can't fight. And he tries to like persuade him out with his words. And eventually one of the other suitors comes up and is, like, is just, what are you doing in here? Get out. We don't come in here. So it was very interesting. And very early on, there's this dichotomy set up between what Telemachus sees as how men should be, which is this fighter warrior type person. His house is full of them. All of the suitors seem to fit into this archetype. The men on Ithaca typically are fishermen and merchants. They're not this kind of person, but he views his father as being this like heroic fighter. And he's not because there's been no one to teach him. So he feels deeply inadequate and like he doesn't match up to his father. And there are at least two points where he's told by people he doesn't look like Odysseus at all. He looks like Penelope. And you can tell that there's this kind of shame almost that he is the son of the great heroic Odysseus, but he doesn't look like him. He can't fight. How are they similar? And then as the story progresses, people tell him, oh, you're clever like your dad. You're good with your words like your dad. Oh, Odysseus was a liar. And that just throws his whole world into turmoil because he starts to realize his father is not this infallible hero warrior that he's he's grown up daydreaming about. He's the Odysseus that we all know and sometimes love. And he lies, he tells stories and he goes around each person he meets who knew Odysseus. He says, tell me about my father. What kind of man was he? And the people of Ithaca are not super happy about him. It's like, well, he was the chief. That's all I'm going to say about that. He was the chief. And then at the town meeting, people rail against him because they took he took their sons away and never came back again. And they don't much care if he comes back. He's as far as they're concerned, dead. And then Nestor explains that he wasn't so much a liar, just like a teller of tales. And Telemachus is like, well, hmm, yes. Is that is that not the same, not the same thing, maybe? So yes, it's all very interesting. And then you meet Polycast, who is Nestor's daughter. Whole interesting thing there that I'm sure we'll get into. She travels with Telemachus to Sparta by themselves unsupervised, unchaperoned. She teaches him to wrestle. Quote, unquote. Yes, quite. And there's like a, a friction of sexual tension and he gets super scared and just stares right past her and she tells him that he's very sweet. Which, I mean, sure, he's not like throwing himself at her. He probably is quite sweet. The whole, they're unsupervised part of the story because it's not even as though they leave Nestor with guards who are somehow killed or something on the way. No, they leave to go and find someone who is supposed to then accompany them to Sparta. He is apparently sick, so they just keep going. There was there was no supervision to begin with, which runs contrary to everything I do understand about ancient Greece, specifically royal women in ancient Greece, but I digress. And then they get to Sparta and meet Menelaus, and he's fascinating and bombastic and this huge personality who is 
clearly a massive sadist and tells them about all of the marvelous things that he brought back from Troy. And this is Priam's shield and Hector's breastplate. And this, I cut off the body of whoever. Wow. Charming, charming. Then Helen shows up as, as she would do. And they have a very passive aggressive marital argument with Helen telling them how she hated being in Troy and, and wanted nothing more than to come home and how wonderful it was to see Odysseus when he snuck into Troy and she just wanted him to take her home again and see her beloved husband. You can like hear the violins swelling in the background. And then Menelaus is getting progressively more and more angry and drunk as she tells this story and essentially says, you're lying. You know you're lying. I know you're lying. Now everyone is going to know you're lying because actually what happened was when the Trojan horse was wheeled into the city, you told Paris that we can't trust it because it's Odysseus and we can't trust Odysseus. And Helen says, oh, he's just playing. He he knows I love it when he makes these jokes. Actually, I was being threatened by Paris to tell him all about the Trojan horse. It wasn't my fault at all. And then the, like, the kids, Telemachus and Polycast, just go to bed. Fair enough. I think I'd have escaped that situation as soon as humanly possible. And then Telemachus is just kind of up wandering randomly. And here's Menelaus and Helen having a proper matrimonial argument, which was just like very, very unsettling. But that was interesting because we get afterwards a discussion between Telemachus and Polycast about Helen. And Polycast is like, she's she's an awful, vain, horrible person. She's the cause of so many deaths. I have zero sympathy for her. And Telemachus is like, it's it's not that simple. Mm, interesting. Very interesting. So that was enjoyable. But then they go with Menelaus to a mountain somewhere. And an Egyptian priest that Menelaus like maybe kidnapped from Egypt, who knows, and brought home, goes into this trance vision thing to ask if Odysseus is in the underworld and he's not. Hooray! So then they're like, okay, well, what do we do now? And Telemachus tells Polycast, well, I'm I'm going back to Ithaca. I'm going to build a tomb for my father and my mother's going to marry someone. And she says, but he's not dead. Odysseus isn't dead. And Telemachus is like, well, what evidence do we have? We have no one who's seen him. We have this half-mad Egyptian priest who who says he didn't see him in the underworld, which is great, but it's not exactly something I can take home to my mother and say, have hope. It's fine. Father will be home in a fortnight. It's, it's not it's not how that works. So that's kind of where you finish the Telemachus narrative. And then it picks up with Nausicaa, who is hilarious. She's just completely not what I was expecting and she's hilarious and it there's she seems very much like your flighty 15 year old boy mad teenage girl which I enjoyed in this historical context I thought that was very clever and she's saying about how she doesn't like any of the men because they're all weavers and accountants and she has no interest in weavers and accountants and she wants a warrior and a man's man and someone covered in scars and Lo and behold, Odysseus washes up on her beach and she is just over the moon and completely gaga over him. And her father is less than thrilled because he is an accountant and his wife is very happy weaving next to her accountant king husband. And he doesn't want anything to do with these fighters because actually what they do is they go off and they kill normal men like himself. I, I wouldn't be a fan of that either. So there's this random old man washed up on the beach covered in scars clearly a fighter has claimed like guest friendship status so can't really do anything 
and they're in the dining hall. There's like little bits and pieces about how Odysseus essentially just lies around and sleeps, which, okay, fair play. He's been drifting in the ocean for God knows how long and has had quite the epic voyage, but was not the behavior I was expecting from the fabled Odysseus. And then they're in the banqueting hall and one of the bards sings the song of Odysseus. Odysseus starts crying because he's Odysseus and this is deeply traumatic for him. And then we finish, or we finished reading just as he kind of introduces himself for the first time. I am from Ithaca, my name is Odysseus. And then it's like, oh, I didn't read further. I was quite tempted to, but I did not. So I don't know if what happens next is we switch to Odysseus perspective or we stick with Nausicaa or, or what happens. Yeah, that, sorry, that was a lot. <laughs> yeah, but, but that's why I have you do the recaps because you deliver them so well. I just go for it. You just go for it. That, that's what we're here for. And I think that's what our audience is here for. They want to hear you just go on and be like, what is this book about? Go. Yeah, there's so much to dig into because like, it's the story we know, but it's, you know, a slightly different day. But the thing is, they're not trying to, he, he didn't reinvent the wheel, right? So he's not like telling us anything new, new per se. And, and, and again, it's hard to really dig in to the proper Odyssey part because it ends before we're even going to actually get into the Odyssey. So I'm like, oh, great. I know. I, I got to the reveal and I was like, no, really? You're going to end here? Seriously? This is so stupid. But okay. So yeah, I wanted to go on, but I didn't either. So we will discover that. But you know, at least for the, I'll, I'll start with the the shorter part with, with Nausicaa, just because we only had two chapters with her. So it's easier to start there and I'll work backwards, which is kind of a weird thing, but I'll do it. Well, one, they changed her name because I thought her name was Nausicaa, like the Miyazaki Nausicaa. But this dude was like, Nausicaa. And I was like, this throws me off. So now I don't know what, what is actually her name. I, I think that's a cultural pronunciation difference again. Maybe. Okay. Well, what we got was pouty teenage girl, which we were both once. And I remember that time in my life. And I'm like, well, I wasn't quite as boy crazy as I think they portrayed her. But I will say I related very deeply to I want a warrior because I went through a phase when I was like 17 or something where I was like, I only want to date or marry a soldier because damn, they look good in a uniform. And that's all I care about. I don't care about anything else. I just want to take pictures with them in uniform because damn, that's sexy. So I deeply, deeply related to that. But I also deeply related, related to the, the father of you know, you, they go and kill people in a foreign country. I don't want this. So yeah, that was interesting. That was kind of fun. But I guess I liked her also because she really, I mean, you know, I was, I'm not reading the physical copy, so I can't say she danced off the page per se, but yeah. she danced off the page and out of the audio book. And you know what? She reminded me of the Nausicaa from the Kirk Douglas Ulysses we watched because she was yeah. also like really I'm young and look I'm gonna call you Stenos and you're like older and handsome and I'm amazed by you and I, I just must like like be married to you and I was like oh honey but you're so young I mean you know in that one she was like young and frilly and she had the cake on her head thing the cake hat and I was like 
yes, she's just like her. So so that marrying the kind of interpretations, I think, was quite amazing. And I, I will say, yeah, I'm just I'm excited to see kind of where the story shifts, whether we are going to get a first person Odysseus or if maybe, although we've done first person Odysseus. So I'm kind of like, I kind of hope that it sticks with Nausicaa and we hear the tale of Odysseus through her eyes, because I'd love to see what her teenage brain thinks of all of his exploits because that would read kind of like a diary of you know epic proportions so working backward i guess yeah telemachus also chronology issue so he literally says my father left me and i was not born i was in my mother's womb and i'm like but Odysseus left when his son was like an infant because you have the whole mythology of he tried to pretend to be insane and almost plowed his son in a field when they were testing him to see if he was actually crazy and would kill his child. So again, I think my biggest issue is just chronology because I'm like, ah, but you're because they're not straying far enough from the original source material that it would make real sense to me at least i mean maybe to other people it's like such a subtle small thing i mean it doesn't like it doesn't really change the actual story that much but i just found it i guess distracting as as we know a homer purist where i'm like no 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 we, we these are these are we know these stories and we have a firm timeline so please don't make major changes i don't wonder if it's it's only a, what a two-year difference but I think it changes it from Telemachus being like a young man already to him still being a child. Because there are several of the older men, male characters, saying, essentially, like, I can't talk to you like this. You're, you're not a grown man. You're still a kid. Which I, I think does add a bit of a nuance to telemachus his situation and, and how he's handling it that's true and i guess it does play into here look i have notes i have many notes that i wrote down in a fury let me refer so as i refer to my notes i wrote down that i really like the concept of the story and the idea that telemachus is a young 16 year old boy and not this sort of like brutal vengeful kind of boy who you would kind of expect being raised in the environment with all the suitors just kind of around and taking advantage of his father's estate but also just you know he could have grown up to be bitter like my daddy's gone and he hasn't come back and everyone's back so now i'm really bitter so i do like how it adds to like it's totally believable that a 16 year old would kind of be quote unquote soft like a woman like his mother because it does really illustrate how he grew up without a father so no one ever taught him to fight no one ever taught him to do anything he is really kind of like weak and sad which makes me sad but again i like that for what the story is <laughs> but i would also say again as my notes say there's a bit of a disconnect though because i found that with him being so young I found like kind of his early journey so far, just at least to, you know, see Nestor and then going to Sparta. It was kind of uneventful as a journey. And I think I was looking for more like adventuring type following your daddy's footsteps. But I don't know. And, and tell me if you feel this way. But and I wrote down in big, bold letters, this is a very character and like theme driven story and not a plot driven one which is kind of a big difference 
but that difference would then also account for the the lack of like action adventure because if you're really trying to tell a story about a character it doesn't really matter what happens to them just the growth that they get out of going and doing and listening i think it's definitely a a character-driven thing and i think i think what we're going to end up with is a telemachus who at the beginning glorified his father as a heroic warrior who has through his journey shown that actually he has the skills like the intelligence the cunning maybe the like the people skills that you see in Odysseus elsewhere and I suspect that you'll see in Odysseus when he comes more fully into this novel so I think it's it's very much looking at personal growth and development and probably having not finished the book a young boy's kind of journey towards seeing his father as an actual human being I mean it's difficult right because it's a father that he's never known but seeing him as a rounded 3d real human being and not someone that he can never measure up to because he's not this great fighter and actually his father has a lot more in common with him than he realizes like, having never met him. I think it's true. I guess it, to me, this book really makes me think that they're kind of, they're going the route that the Netflix Troy Fall of a City did, which is like where that strove to turn a normally just sort of bloodthirsty rah-rah Achilles into like the philosopher king type. I think this is kind of doing the same for Telemachus where they definitely try to make him thoughtful. And I think, I hope that we get the reunion when Odysseus comes home. And then instead of just the, because we're so used to just seeing, you know, father and son find each other. And then he goes, yes, father, I will help you kill the suitors. Ha 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 ha. We will plan. And then they just like go around and kill the suitors. And there's not really a lot of personality in there other than father, I found you, so I will follow you. So I'm hoping that from this character driven development, we'll get things roll around in his brain and whether he has any moral qualms. And I know they set it up and just the story, the way it is, like, it's not really set up to make you have pity for any of the suitors. I mean, here he is, a 16-year-old boy, and he doesn't like that suitors are way trespassing the guest friendship. They're killing each other. They're trying to get to his mother. But, like, I think that if they were going to go with this more philosophical version of him, they're going to have to do some sort of, well, I didn't like them, but they were in my home and they were around, so that did have an impact on me. So to just, like, kill them without any kind of reflection or feeling it's going to be interesting and i also just enjoyed his description of antinous obviously the lead suitor as having the the small round eyes or whatever and the mean face and it just read like a diary entry of a 16 year old boy that he would write in his journal like and he was so mean to me and his fat little mean face it was really interesting though because he's like sitting in Penelope's chambers in his like dressing gown essentially (laughs) and Telemachus describes how you can like see his chest hair and he's just sitting there staring at his mother and it's it's kind of gross it really is and you find out later because when Telemachus is recounting essentially his life story to Polycast you find out that he's had to listen to these men speak about his mother in ways that you, you don't want to hear men speak about your mother 
And then on his birthday, they dressed him up in her clothes and made him sing to them. And it's just, it's yeah, not pleasant, not pleasant. But it was funny. The line that was read, it was hilarious. The And one day I caught the suitors speaking about my mother in a way where, it was very uncomfortable. So I decided that maybe I should just get up and leave. And I was like, I love how it was so nonchalant. It wasn't even how dare they disrespect. It was just, you know, I'm a little uncomfortable. So I'm going to just um, peace out. Yeah, you know, you know, and, and then go talk to like your Clea and be away. And I was like, dude, 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 it manages to, to, to still weave in humor. And I was not expecting that because it is kind of just a depressing story of a missing father and a poor woman besieged in a son who's kind of got a target on his back so you don't really expect a lot of humor honestly the whole thing is a freaking greek tragedy just with sappy sappy woman waiting for her husband and he's off being a philanderer and all these things and poor little boy so yeah humor i was like it's funny it's funny i would say what was your favorite section so far it's a weird choice but really early on in the book telemachus goes to the shrine local shrine on the mountain and the way it's described is really really evocative and it's like a cave carved into the mountainside and it's shrouded in like trailing plants and inside it is dark and smoky and stinks of like rancid meat and rotting food because obviously when you leave offerings to the gods one of the things you can leave is food and one of the things that is a regular occurrence is like blood sacrifices you sacrifice an animal and the gods get the best parts and it's something that i'd not really thought about and and in mesopotamia at least it's kind of understood that the gods are given their offerings and then the maybe the the priests eat the offerings. But the idea of having it just sitting there and slowly decaying was very, yeah, very interesting. And then it's it's like this dark, smoky cave and it smells horrible. And it just, the way it was described was so convincing. I really kind of got a feeling for the space in a way that I don't always with space in novels. It was really thoughtfully described and there are offerings everywhere. And then there's this interaction with the priest there who is clearly very dismissive, rude about the idea of Odysseus coming back. And Penelope has been levering offerings, very precious offerings in a, a chest that she's had purpose built to hold all of this hope, like material hope that her husband will A, survive and, and then come home again was really like tra tragic, just absolutely tragic. And then the, the very last bit, he asks to see the offerings that Odysseus himself left. And one of them is this small carved owl, obviously symbol of Athena, but Telemachus tells us that it was kind of set aside from the rest of them. And no one really knows why his father left it. And it's a, been a bit of a mystery. And then as he's leaving to get on the boat to go and find Odysseus, a random girl from the town runs up to him and gives him an identical owl and says, you have to find him. And he's like, who are you? Ah, 
sure I will find my father. What? Why do you have this? But oh, she's she's gone. And Polycast, when he tells her this story, she says, well, obviously your dad had a mistress. This is just kind of how royal dudes worked. There was a mistress. That girl is is your half sister. So that was, yeah, interesting. And I, I, I'm keen to see if she pops up again. I assume she does because it's a, it's an odd thing to include as like a throwaway thing. So I'm assuming she'll pop up again and that there'll be some more extended scene, like maybe it's a point of contention with Telemachus and Odysseus. I don't know. It will be, I'm saying the word interesting a lot, but it will be interesting to see how that one plays out because Telemachus, the way he describes his mother is a woman who is a shell of her former self and she is suffering and has suffered and is essentially like almost going mad I think from loneliness so the idea the revelation that his father not only has been you know having pleasant dalliances with random goddesses across the Aegean but also has a mistress in the town probably is not going to sit terribly well with him so yeah we shall see about that one what did you like? I honestly love when they get to Sparta and I love the interactions with Menelaus and especially Helen because I don't think any of the adaptations, either Iliad or Odyssey that we've looked at so far has had Telemachus had have any interaction with Helen, which would make sense. I don't know why you'd include it really because the source, the original two epics don't have that so it's kind of a delightful extra bonus but i i just love when he like first meets her and you get this description where he was like initially he didn't know what to expect and he's very curious like any 16 year old boy would be i mean because anyone who knows 16 year old boys are probably going to be like yeah what kind of woman like how hot do you have to be to make a thousand ships go get you and fight a eight to ten year war like you know i mean she's got to be pretty hot or pretty interesting have a great personality although i don't think 16 year old boys really care unfortunately about your personality but you know i'm going out on a limb because i do not have a 16 year old boy so if i'm wrong sue me i, I just love how when he finally sees her what you get is this amazing just amazing descriptive information where it's she was more breathtaking than i could have expected and i love how he went into the detail of oh and her voice when she started speaking had this like seductive quality that makes me want to do anything to defend her so you sort of understand from a 16 year old brain without any of the nuance that you're like so she's fucking hot and her voice apparently is like the most alluring voice that you've ever heard or will hear so i'm also because i'm like a very auditory and visual person i'm kind of like so how sexy does this voice have to be because i pay attention to like the sexiness of people's voices i don't know it's like a weird thing because i just you know so i'm like okay so 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 can can i compare this to like what modern actors or people do i know is this like a scarlett johansson voice coming from like the movie her right where you're like damn her voice is sexy as hell and she's a fucking computer but like i'm in love too that's a whole nother story for another day because i have 
thoughts on ScarJo's voice in her because shit, man, damn it. Anyway, yes. So that was like great because that brought up all this like stuff for me and I loved it. And then their marital fight. And then I loved how it, it rehashes the themes that I was curious in and I'm always curious in for the Iliad stuff. I mean, so when you listen to the first half of our our big mega season one, all we talk about is this narrative of, okay, but was Helen kidnapped or did she go willingly? How does that change the story? Does it change the story? So what I love is her when she's trying to like make and concoct this lie for everyone else. I love how she does lean into the Paris is awful and he stole me away from my husband and my home. Interestingly enough, she does not talk about her children. She does not say I was stolen away and my daughter Hermione was left here, but you know, okay, fine, oversight, whatever. You can't have everything you want. But I found it really interesting how she did bring up the I was stolen aspect and that's why she missed home and all this stuff that she's basically fabricating. And so the dynamic was fantastic. But I, I also love that when he was eavesdropping on their proper marital fight, you get the, I would, I would have, you know, give up everything for one night with Paris because this is horrible. And I'd take one night with Paris over a lifetime with you. I'm like, holy fuck. Okay. I was like, she's salty, man. She's so salty, but I loved it. So I think just because I like things that lean into the humor, if you're going to put that into something that's really serious, it's got to be humor done right. And to me, this is humor done excellently, but manages to also capture deeper themes that we've tried to analyze. And yeah, I think that was my favorite so far. That was a lot. That that whole that whole interaction between Helen and Menelaus, it's like threateningly funny. It's amusing because you've got them essentially telling two different stories ostensibly to their guests, but really having this very passive aggressive fight. But you can kind of feel the threat and the aggression slowly increasing as they keep going until they're actually screaming at each other after everyone else has gone to bed. It was funny, but it was unsettling at the same time. Definitely not a comfortable place. I mean, because if, you know, uh, we're uncomfortable as readers. How uncomfortable is Telemachus? when he's like at the door like i hear this i'm trapped in this house <laughs> yeah i would give anything to just leave so i i should maybe just leave please <laughs> so yeah i i really like that part the nester part was fun but not as fun but i also thought it was fun that telemachus even goes to see nester because you don't expect that it was nice to see nester i'm still a bit confused as to what polycast is doing just generally in the story obviously she's she's kind of being set up as a love interest except she's a love interest who from her own mouth has zero interest in, in being a love interest like she's learned how to fight because she refuses to be taken off as as a war captive like the Trojan women were. She kind of hates all of the warrior culture. It, it really makes her feel deeply unsafe and she doesn't like it. And Telemachus is, feels very keenly that he should be a warrior. He feels less because he is not a warrior. So how that relationship, friendship, whatever it is we're looking at, is going to resolve or even if, if it goes anywhere at all, because it, where we leave it, Polycast is going back to, to Pylos and Telemachus is heading home to Ithaca. And 
for all that Nestor sent his unaccompanied teenage daughter to Sparta with another teenager. Very strange. For all that that happened, I can't necessarily see her just gallivanting off to Ithaca without, you know, going home and telling her father first or, you know, getting an armed guard or something. So, yes. The lack of chaperone really stood out because I was just like, what in the... Is that... Yeah. So I was like, oh, okay, okay. It's funny because when I, when I, when they did say like, there's no chaperone, again, because I just am a casual, no, let's be real. I'm a fanatic lover and watcher of many different types of films. I immediately, my brain went right to, have have you seen, what is it called? Corpse Bride. Yeah. Okay. You know that scene where Johnny Depp's character, Victor, is with his his bride-to-be, Victoria, and they're, like, playing the piano, and they're, like, talking. And, and then suddenly, as they're, like, having a moment, the, the, the mother comes in with that fantastic voice actress, and she's like, what in the world is this without a chaperone? That clicked into my brain. That's very much how I felt. Where is your chaperone? What is going on here? That scene, like, clicked into my mind with that actress's voice and I was like young lady go to your room oh god it was so it was wonderful it was wonderful I was pseudo trying to like cast this book as a film putting in my favorite actors let's be real but I do that with half the stuff I read I really 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 wish that Christopher Lee was still with us because I really wanted him to be Nestor like really wanted him to be Nestor Helen is supposed to be hot with the seductive voice and well because my mind went right to ScarJo in her I was like it's, it's got to be ScarJo, obviously. Love her so much. I feel like she'd do the passive-aggressive thing very well also. Oh, she would totally do the passive-aggressive thing. I mean, I was also kind of basing it off of her performance as Black Widow in a lot of the Marvel, Marvel films. Because like her interactions with Captain America are like golden. And she's not afraid to mince words and like do the uncomfortable thing. So, yeah, she would be a great Helen. Who did I have as... You know what? I I absolutely just love what's his name who plays Menelaus from from the Brad Pitt Troy. To me, he's my favorite favorite Menelaus. I don't remember his name, but he'd be a fantastic Menelaus for this. Brian Gleason, I think I think it's Brian Gleason, big tall Scottish I think actor. He's I love him. He's great. I mean, honestly, the guy both Agamemnon and Menelaus in the Brad Pitt Troy are the most perfect casting choices and I, I want to see them in everything. Yeah. I don't know who would be Telemachus. That was the one I was kind of waffling over. I mean, I was kind of like maybe like a like Timothy Chamelet kind of thing because he's got that just like youthful face type thing. Because the thing is, it's like also since he's being described, it's kind of like on the prettier side, the softer features where he's not like um he's not young he's not or he's not like buff and you so you can't cast like a muscly young guy he's very slight in my mind and yeah timothy chamelet just kind of fits the bill which is also why i think he's fantastic in dune because he he is this sort of slight small not traditional just you know so maybe, you know what, maybe I will say Timothy Chamelet is, is my Telemachus. I don't know, who do, who do you cast? I'm so curious. I don't tend to cast novels when I read them, but I, I do like your casting choices very much. I don't have any better suggestions. 
I'm trying to think who I'd do for Nausicaa, but I'm not sure. You can just say the actress from Ulysses because she was good. That's true. So, or, yeah. you know what? Actually, I'm connecting this Nausicaa to Nausicaa from Miyazaki's film. The voice actress who voices Nausicaa, Alison Lohman, has that perfect, like, super high-pitched sort of naive young lady sound. I mean, obviously, in Nausicaa, the Valley of the Wind, she, she is required to sort of put a little more grit into some of the scenes where she's supposed to be the the tough courageous young lady but when she's not busy being the the tough princess ordering people around i mean her voice actress is fantastic it's like the perfect nausicaa voice i'm gonna go with allison loman i think so for anyone who wants to know who this is watch miyazaki's film nausicaa the valley of the wind the english dub because that is allison loman and she's like got the perfect voice for also young princess. one of the only animated movies with cuneiform in it oh no it's not valley of the wind it's castle in the sky yeah because i was gonna say no it's wrong castle one in the sky. yeah no castle in the sky different film entirely but equally fantastic you sh everyone should watch all the miyazaki films but yeah no i mean it's a similar vibe i you know just it doesn't have cuneiform unfortunately but similar vibe more uh, things should have cuneiform in them i'm waiting for everything an should. odyssey adaptation with more cuneiform i'm gonna be waiting a while i think if i asked you megan i'm pretty sure i could be like megan go through everything that could or should or is connected to cuneiform in some way and you're gonna give me like a list and it's just gonna be endless i there are certainly some it was in the new dark dark crystal series that i actually didn't watch but that's a netflix one they've got cuneiform in there there's also a couple of doctor who episodes with cuneiform in the orient express episode has what looks like like a, a military standard i think it has a king name and i think it's Gudea or something similar yeah i want to say did Tales of Earthsea have cuneiform in it? Or no, that was some other random language. I haven't actually seen that one. Okay. Well, it's not Miyazaki. It was Miyazaki's son who did that one. And it was 2006, I believe. Although you should watch it anyway, because Mariska Hargitay is one of the characters. And I was like, I love Mariska. So yay, Mariska. I really like that book as well anyway, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, everything Miyazaki is just brilliant and amazing. And and yes, for you listeners, if you're curious, I will try to find a reason for us to review any of the Miyazaki films because, well, I want to. But really, who needs an excuse to watch them again? I know, right? Well, they're all based in like some kind of mythology and have gods. And, and you know what? If we looked really deep, we'd find all kinds of like Japanese mythology. And I'm really, I would be into doing a season on Japanese inspired things. So just to make us watch all the Miyazaki films. I'm, in, I'm into it. I'm into it. Anyway, yeah, I don't know. I guess the book is pretty short from my understanding. Obviously, I don't have the physical copy. I have the audiobook, but I read up to chapter 10 and there's only 20 chapters. So, I mean, we kind of blew through the half. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's definitely on the shorter side. The print version is, I think, around 260 odd pages, but it's quite large print and very widely spaced. So I don't think you're really getting 260 pages worth of, <laughs> of novel that you might have if it was in a more traditional type font and size. Yeah, I think we've gotten everything from the first half. So I, I'll say, what are you looking forward to in the second half? Things you want to see you know, I don't know, anything. Interested to see how Telemachus reacts to his father coming home. 
whether this mysterious girl, possibly a daughter of Achilles, possibly not really, who knows, comes into play, like if she's actually a significant character. And also interested to see how the confrontation with the suitors goes. Because the Telemachus we have, I do not see senselessly slaughtering a whole bunch of people. Odysseus doesn't seem to be terribly emotionally stable from what we've seen. Again, we've had one chapter and a few pages with him in. He's done very little except lie around, eat a lot, and then cry violently. So not not sure how that's going to go, but it will be an adventure to find out. What are you looking for in particular? I think also the confrontation with the suitors, because now we have a philosophical boy and reuniting with your father does not make him a warrior because he can't make up for all those trainings. So it's like what what happens when you have a 16-year-old boy who has never learned to fight and is kind of described as being weak. I don't really see him taking a very... I mean, the, the suitors will get slaughtered because since it seems to be following the Odyssey, there's no way in which they, they, don't, they don't. But I'm... I'm very curious to see if this is very much like I'll help you plan and get you in, but then dad, you take over and kill everyone because I can't. So I wonder if it's going to be handled in a, in a way where he can't physically do it or it's, he can't also mentally do it because he's more philosophical. So I'm really interested in seeing that the reunion of the family after the suitors are murdered, I'm really interested to see just because the Penelope from this one is a little more, I don't want to say basic, but like other adaptations have done a bit more with her. This one is, is not, I mean, for obvious reasons, I guess it's from the son's perspective and self-discovery of himself and his, his father. And he's, he's worried about all these other things. So we don't really have a reason to get a lot from her interested to see how how their reunion goes and i think someone i spoke to who had read the book said oh be prepared there's a fun sort of plot twist at the end a fun little take and so that made me just very curious as to i'm always down for a fun plot right so i'm like i don't know what kind of plot twist that you would have but maybe it does involve the the girl right he woke um, up and it was all a dream <laughs> oh, oh gosh one. Yeah, it, it, we would be getting very Walking Dead on, on it, right? Although they did say the whole thing was not a figment of Rick's imagination and he's not going to wake up in his hospital bed, unfortunately. So they would have to do something really drastic. But yeah, I guess, you know, final thoughts are that's what I'm excited for. I also am... I didn't think they would include the gods in this. Again, they're hard to do. They don't really show up. And if they do show up, it would be at the end because he he wouldn't really and into like you, there's just even in the original, it's like Athena comes to him and says, "Okay, only I will disguise your father, and only you will recognize him." But I don't really expect the gods to turn up because it would be a bit random for this adaptation. But yeah, and, and and I'm honestly just curious to see how they handle the retelling of what Odysseus has been up to and I hope it's not from his perspective I hope it is desperate I desperately hope it's from Nausicaa's perspective because well I want a 16 year old girl like like fangirly diary entry type of thing and I will mention for audiobook listeners if you are following the path that I am and not reading the 
physical version. It's really interesting. There are two different people reading it. Very few things, especially of, of the shorter type of thing, split the duties. Most of the other adaptations I've read, it's one person. And I tried to notice if there was like a rhyme or reason between, okay, maybe this one guy will read everything for Telemachus and then the other person will do something else. And it, it kind of worked like that for a little bit because the one guy read everything until it got to Nausicaa and then the other guy took over. Which was interesting because it was also just like, but you're reading from a woman's perspective. Why didn't they just get a woman? It's Yeah, it's odd. If you're switching characters, why not have a female narrator for the, the girl? But then the other ones, it seems that it looks like it's going to switch back to being the first guy. But he's not reading for Telemachus. It seems like he's going to go into chapter 10 in the, the Odyssey part. So I'm just confused as to why the switch and... So that's, yeah, just musings on like why I don't understand these switches. It's kind of jarring to hear, you know, I listened to the first guy for like seven chapters, man. And then I get a different person for two and then I'm going again. So, yeah. So, you know, I'm I'm interested to see how it ends. How it all ends. <laughs> again. <laughs> well, Thank you, Lexi, for sharing your thoughts. Thank you, audience, for listening along. I hope you have enjoyed it. I know we, we kind of took a couple of, I'd say, more divergent tangents than we normally do, but hopefully it was enjoyable regardless. I feel like part of the reason people listen is for our banter and our weird, weird musings. There's a lot of banter. And, and how our brains work in different ways. So, you know, I think it'd be boring if we had, like, the same kind of thought patterns anyway so no one would want that no i'm kidding i don't know but yeah so this is what we thought of part one join us next week for part two and we'll finish this shorter book yeah thanks for listening bye, bye. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review. And you can also follow us on social media at The Reading Party Podcast. If you'd like to leave us a book or movie suggestion, then email us at thereadingpartypod at gmail.com. See you next week.